Okay, so our larger theme at the moment is um, ideas and concepts, and uh, particularly their um, the implication of ideas for sensing with soul, uh, how uh, the ideas we have influence. Uh, we talked about how the ideas that we inherit, if you like, um, often operate unconsciously and influence or limit or or open um, certain directions of experience uh, and understanding, uh, sensing the soul or not, etc. And we touched on that. So ideas um, unconsciously have that power. Uh, consciously, too, they have that power and so want to be talking about that like what what does it mean to incorporate an idea so that it influences the sensing or opens the sensing or makes uh, this or that possible in the sensing sensing the soul <coughs> excuse me part of all that I'd like to weave in is just the the relationship um, between ideas and uh, images Idos and Icon, uh, the relationship of ideas or the place of ideas in sensing the soul. And some of what I want to weave in over the course of the next few talks is also uh, what does it mean uh, to meditate um, on an idea or with an idea? What does that mean? What that might what that might what might that look like for us and involve for us? So all of that, and I want to um, point to point out certain. Uh, possibilities, uh, some specific possibilities, and discuss them um, if that's possible. And but let's start with uh, uh, well, in in the course of um, discussing certain possibilities and opening up these specific practices, um, we'll start with the relatively familiar. Uh, what will probably be relatively familiar for many of you. But before we even uh, get going with with uh, that, it's important to point out, you know, that, that when 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 I'm using the word idea, um, sometimes people uh, very easily uh, um, take that to mean something only or mostly abstract. Um, so it's a certain thought, and it kind of happens in your head in a kind of way that's abstracted, taken away from um, the world, or, or particularly the world of perception. So unfortunately, just the, the way we tend to think about ideas and ideation in our, in our larger culture um, is not a way that allows them very easily to translate into actual ways of looking, into meditations, into perception, into sensing. But that is what I'm really talking about. I'm not really, per se, that much interested in just ideas that remain purely abstract. What I'm really wanting to point to is uh, that ideas um, can, and or many ideas can, and in our case, they should translate into actual ways of looking that are operating in the moment to open or um, uh, shape the sensing. Uh, in in particular ways, 
So this um, skill to be able to translate ideas into the perception, to hold them subtly at the back of the mind, so to speak, so that they become ways of looking, is, is such an important skill as a human being. I mean, in terms of uh, practice and what can be possible in practice. And um, sometimes I I think I, I slightly overestimate um, just just what's involved in, in just making that transition uh, or just understanding uh, for people to understand that's what we're talking about. So really right from the start, that's what we're talking about. When we say ideas, uh, it's it's for the sake of their implementation as as in ways of looking to open up the whole sense of existence uh, as an actual sense in the actual senses, yeah, not abstracted. Um, so it's interesting. I don't know. I was thinking a while ago about the word reflection. Um, that word um, it's also suggests that through an idea or a concept. Uh, the the looking and so that what is perceived in the looking is reflected according to that idea or concept so we say I reflect on an idea or I reflect on this or that and, and we tend to think of cogitation uh, mental cogitation but the idea also uh, uh, can, or the word reflection may have kind of um, intimations of this idea of reflecting so what is um, how the world is reflected is through an idea um, or ideas. The idea is part of what forms the way of looking at any time, as I said, and we want to um, be very f- f- uh, agile with that, nimble and facile and dexterous with, with that. Uh, there's a limitation, obviously, to using that word reflection because it implies... Um, a world that's independently existing that is then reflected in this way according to this idea or in that way according to another idea <coughs> and um, our our logos, our larger conceptual frame is more in favour of um, the create-discover model but that, that works too, you know, this idea of reflecting uh, that way So ideas, when we talk about ideas uh, concepts, we're talking about something that needs to somehow become a way of looking, it needs to be translated in, incorporated literally into a way of looking. And then um, the that way of looking uh, can refine and deepen, can be refined and be deepened. Um, so this goes for any way of looking, so we could take anything as an example, but um, <clears throat> When we get to talking about meditation on ideas, it's uh, just like any way of looking meditation. It, uh, they need to be kind of not too clunky or not gross or move move on from the clunky and gross into the more subtle. It needs to be able to refine, deepen, become more subtle, and in a way to involve more and more of the being and uh, the levels of the being and the levels of perception. So that goes for any, that's the kind of, the the possibility of meditation to, to deepen, to refine, etc. So for example, um, one could have a practice of, say, 
giving my aggregates to the divinity, to a god or the gods or uh, the divine or the Buddha nature or whatever. And uh, that's the the practice that one might be doing at some time. And perhaps one is tired at the time one is doing that. So including the tiredness as part of the aggregate, uh, the aggregates that are present, one gives that to the divine. Um, when uh, the sense of self, the I, that is that is giving in that way and that is experiencing the tiredness, when the divine and when the tiredness itself are all somehow or other seen as uh, empty or more empty or less substantial, more transparent or void or whatever we want to say in some way or other, through some way of looking, some other way of looking that's kind of uh, operating at the same time that sees their emptiness. So there's um, a larger practice there of giving the aggregates to the divine or perhaps back to the divine the divinity but part of that is that self divine and aggregates including perhaps whatever one is struggling with or whatever one is feeling joy over um, or enjoying all are in some way seen as empty so in a way there's there's a larger way of looking and a, and a kind of uh, a, 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 another way of looking, the seeing of the emptiness somehow or other to some level that's wrapped up in that larger way of looking. Or you could say it's a it's an amalgamation of a few different ways of looking. But when we do that, for example, so it's not just giving the, my aggregates to the divine, the divinity, it's actually gone to another level by virtue of some degree of emptiness uh, perception being involved in what in the giving, in who's giving and what's being given and who it's being given to, then, when that's the case, then the whole movement, the whole gesture and the whole sense of that idea, of, if we call it an idea of giving my aggregates to the divinity, um, it deepens. It's deepened by that and actually becomes much more freeing and much more beautiful and will feel more sacred, generally speaking. Um, so... The point really, I could have picked any example, but the point really is that there's always this kind of possibility of any way of looking, uh, whether it seems obviously to involve an idea or not, uh, uh, to, to deepen, to refine, to become more subtle, etc. Uh, and in, in also to become more comprehensive. So this is possible for most uh, meditations, uh, any way of looking, meditation on an idea, meditation on an image. Um, there's, if we talk about incorporating emptiness into it, well then there's this, as, as I alluded to, there's a kind of uh, spectrum, if you like, of how much emptiness is included or how deep it goes. And, and anywhere on that spectrum is available as a sort of uh, variation on the larger way of looking. Um, and similarly, actually, we could say if the whole thing is seen as image, uh, Im imaginally, and then the middle way of the imaginal is there, and this neither real nor not real, it will function in a similar way to the emptiness to allow more beauty, more sacredness, become more freeing, etc. If that's in that example of giving the, giving my aggregates to the divinity. Um, so 
I think I've mentioned this before at some point in on a retreat, and I can't remember, perhaps on the re-enchanting retreat, but if we were, um, just because I mentioned that example of giving the aggregates to the divinity, if we were uh, meditating with, um, let's say, receiving, say, uh, love or light or whatever from a divinity, then uh, I would say that rather than sort of being more interested in in more emptiness, in incorporating more emptiness into the whole gestalt of the view, it's actually quite important when we receive uh, love from a divinity in the meditation to um, explore all the positions on the self-spectrum. In other words, a very solid, contracted, reified self-sense. It's really important that that self-sense, because it's often quite a suffering self-sense, um, it's really important that that self-sense puts itself or feels itself in in the stream and bathed in the stream of the divine light, and the divine love, whatever. Um, that's very, very useful to include that more solid self-sense and views. Um, but... Uh, also, also the less uh, less solid self, senses of self. That it's all important. Yeah. So, but generally, there's this possibility in any in any way of looking um, for it to refine and and deepen and and kind of open up in that way. So. Um, Back to this idea, uh, or rather wrapped up in what we just said, is um, this idea that uh, an I- this idea that ideas, when we're talking about ideas, need to come into the way of looking, and for that they need to be a bit more subtle. They can't be too gross, um, or rather for the way of looking to be agile and actually to be able to work in the moment and with different conditions and to go deep, the the way that the idea is incorporated um, has to be quite subtle. Um, so sometimes, as an example, um, we could take the whole idea or conceptual framework of dependent origination that the Buddha came up with, with 12 links or sometimes it's 10 links or sometimes 13 or whatever, but let's say 12 links. And that whole conceptual framework is really a network of ideas. And um, what I've noticed teaching this in different um, situations with with people is that uh, oftentimes people really seem to enjoy kind of the the categorization of their experience. So they might be one way I can do it sometimes with a group of people is to sort of um, look back on some whole scenario of dukkha that transpired perhaps in a social situation or a work situation, whatever, and kind of use that grid of concepts and the dependent origination, the 12 links there, and sort of um, file things or categorizing when uh, when that happened, that was uh, a sankara in the form of uh, a previous belief structure or expectation or um, conditioning. And when that moment happened, it was the shrinking of the consciousness. And when that moment happened, that was the um, aversion to the unpleasantness in the contact, etc. Um, 
So people seem to really quite enjoy uh, kind of doing a bit of a post-mortem on some kind of suffering or even just a categorization of some kind of made-up situation. Um, and there's a way that, you know, that's helpful because it helps digest that uh, that conceptual framework and the, and the concepts that make it up at a certain level. But that, to me, is not is not a full enough understanding. We can have a feeling, you know, I've touched on this before, we can have a, a, a kind of, we enjoy the feeling, or many of us do as human beings, when we sort of fitted uh, this this experience to that concept, and we sort of break and broken things down. We found a sort of way that um, we can file all the words of what, what we find in the text and what the Buddha is talking about, and we file it, and it means this, and that translated as this, and that situation, it meant that thing and um, there's a kind of uh, relatively neat um, filing away of all the concepts and we can kind of sometimes enjoy that and mistake it for the kind of level of understanding that's really going to be liberating which goes beyond that so certainly not um, just post-mortems on our uh, suffering that has already transpired it's not really going to help that much but nor is this just um, sort of the satisfaction of neatly putting concepts in boxes and neatly mapping them to uh, uh, sort of um, circumscribed um, experiences or movements of consciousness or whatever in our life um, so it can be useful, but actually, again, what we need to do is live an understanding of dependent origination in ways that liberate. And that means translate um, that to uh, actually not just a way of looking, lots of ways of looking in the moment. There is a whole as I said, network of concepts there and all the links and all the interconnections. So many, many possible ways of looking are available from that uh, classic Buddhist teaching of the, the Buddhist classic teaching of dependent origination. Um, and again, with, let's, if we take that, uh, that map of dependent origination, that, that uh, network of concepts, that conceptual framework, and what can often happen is that um, someone e- even doesn't just stop at a kind of relatively gross intellectual categorization of what might happen. And they don't just stop even with a relatively gross uh, labeling in the present moment of what's going on. Ah, yes, there's aversion here, or whatever. Ah, yes, there's greed here, um, or something like that. Ah, yes, there's selfing here. Um, You know, that kind of observation will be helpful if I catch it in the moment. Ah, there's selfing here, you know, Um, or there's uh, greed or aversion. That's going to be, it may be relatively helpful, just there's enough mindfulness there to not get completely sucked into something. It may create... um, a bit of more spaciousness, a bit bit of a break-up of the momentum of the sort of um, samsaric flow, if you like. But there's the possibility of much more as a subtle wielding of the concepts involved, much more subtly incorporated into ways of looking uh, in a much more fluid and agile way. Um, And so someone might take it to another level. And for instance... um, 
look at the link between Vedana and Tanha, Vedana and craving, and have a practice derived from that map of dependent origination and that particular link between Vedana and craving, have a practice of stationing the awareness on, let's say, unpleasant Vedana, uh, or pleasant Vedana, whatever, and stationing the awareness on the Vedana and observing moment to moment the the uh, rapid changing of the Vedana itself, um, and just being or, or just being with the Vedana, and in that um, kind of intensity and acuity of attention on the Vedana, there's uh, a, a, a marked stopping down, or even um, uh, a, mar- a marked slowing down or attenuation, let's say, of how much the Vedna gives, how much craving the Vedna then gives rise to, either in aversion or, uh, or, or desire to have more or to hold on to. So it's a very specific way of looking. Stay at the Vedna. Focus on the Vedna as they're happening right now. And that very focusing, even if it doesn't have a, a contemplation of impermanence, just seeing pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, 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 whatever it is, um, that will attenuate the craving that comes out of that. So I've talked and written about this in the past. Very skillful practice. Stationing the awareness on the Vedna. Some people, though, take that as the kind of the pinnacle of what's possible in uh, as as a way of looking that might come out of the twelve links of the map of the twelve links of dependent origination, and th- there I, I would say, well, actually, a lot more is possible, and a lot more subtle than that, and a lot more um, liberating than that. Some people even would say that that is um, what. Uh, uh, what what the experience of an arahant is is that vedana arises um, unpleasant or pleasant whatever and there is no craving and this kind of practice that we can do of stationing the the focus of attention on the vedana and, and thus the craving being attenuated through the uh, intensity and the steadiness of that gaze on the vedana some people would say that's practicing the way an arahant would see anyway, the way an arahant would experience anyway. That's practicing um, a state of uh, liberation or arahantship or whatever. Um, But then what can often happen is uh, quite a lot gets clung to in in there or or, or stopped. Uh, One is the view of what awakening is, and the other is what just quite what is possible from the uh, trans or through the translation of that uh, those concepts um, independent origination that Buddha outlined um, into ways of looking one one limits because one stopped somewhere and so oh, that's it that's kind of what I need to see now everything else um, there's not much more there uh, and one has stopped the possibilities for this translation of concept and idea into way of looking there One of the things that I feel is very important as a general statement um, is that um, all these Dharma categories, so for example, those 12 links of dependent origination, uh, avijja, sankhara, vijnana, uh, so delusion, uh, fabrications, fabricating forces, um, consciousness, uh, etc., perception, all the rest of it, craving. Um, 
to me, they are, and, and to many, or at least some uh, Dharma teachers and Buddhist teachers in, in the history of the tra- wider tradition, they are not truths, they are not ultimate truths. Um, they are these categories, these Dharma categories. So, the twelve links there of dependent origination, the three um, kilesas, or the five aggregates, or awakening, or whatever. They all, um, first of all, again, we we can notice how they've been uh, translated and shifted in in given different interpretations in different points in the history of Buddhism and different uh, locations in the, in the uh, dissemination of Buddhism o- over the globe. Um, but more importantly, they're also empty. Uh, they are realized to them, to, we can realize that they themselves do not have inherent existence. So they are not truths. These twelve links, these five aggregates, uh, etc., these three kilesas, they're not ultimate truths. Even the Theravadan tradition, Ajahnmabhua, um, used to say, uh, all, all, everything that's involved in the Four Noble Truths is just is is uh, a relative truth, and 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 the Twelve Links of Dependent Origination are the Buddha's longhand version of the Second Noble Truth, the causes for the arising of of dukkha, um, craving uh, being the shorthand version, or clinging being the shorthand version. But um, but the longhand version is is uh, is dependent origination in in that model, and Ajahn Mahabhu said this is all this is all uh, relative truth. When you take the raft of the four noble truths and that teaching of dependent origination, you go beyond it. So the, to me, there's a whole other level here, way beyond that stationing of the attention at Vedana, where the whole all the links of dependent origination begin to kind of melt through actually contemplating uh, the, the very mechanism of dependent origination and what it is. It's as if you take that teaching, you take it a deeper and deeper and deeper level. Um, I used to say like a snake, it's like a, a snake uh, swallowing its own tail. Maybe better to say is they, they, they melt... Uh, those concepts melt under the gaze of the understanding of dependent origination, which is the understanding of emptiness. Um, so they're not truths; they're they're, ra- they're they're rafts. They're part of the raft of what the, what the Buddha talked about. They're skillful means. They're relative truths that can be helpful at when they are translated into ways of looking. The worst thing, or, or you know, would be to cling to them intellectually as truths and statements about. This is my philosophical position on what life is, um, uh, and uh, they haven't actually been become really fertile and really taken this journey into depth and radicality uh, that they can when they are translated in, into ways of looking um, that bring a kind of uh, levels of freedom dependent on the levels in which that translation has actually um, been worked uh, by the practitioner. Um, so as an example, and I don't know whether I've mentioned this anywhere else in a talk, but um, the the three kilesas uh, were um, picked out, three defilements, sometimes they call, the Buddha used to say, these are three fires, you have to put them out. Greed, aversion, delusion. Um, and, uh, you know, 
in a way, he was responding to the spiritual culture at his time in India, which was dominated by um, the Vedic teachings um, and the uh, Brahminical teachings. And in uh, the Vedic and Brahminical religions, they used to burn three fires, and the idea was to keep them burning. Um, The Buddha came along and said, you've got to put them out. Now, we could say, well, if he happened to be in a different spiritual culture or time where they had, say, four fires or two fires, would that have shaped his teaching of the Dharma? Would he say there are four or two kilesas? Because he was really kind of spinning some something taken for granted in, in people's spiritual understanding. He was just spinning it the other way, kind of the way Jesus would do uh, when he says in different teachers of his, it's a kind of um, hey, think about this. Um, it, it, uh, so you know, you see the kind of historical conditioning even of the original um, Buddhist teachings there. So from many angles, we can see these Dharma concepts are not um, absolute ultimate truth. They're just um, uh, they're. They're, they, they're for the sake of becoming ways of looking. They're optional lenses that we can put down, pick up, um, pick up and kind of go for a ride on. Sometimes I call them avenues, which is something I'll come to in a minute. Um, so we use them to um, uh, to suggest um, also that they become ways of looking, um, ways of sensing, um, and and. And something like the teaching of dependent origination with those links, as I said, there's a whole plethora of um, potential uh, ways of looking that can be uh, extracted or or constructed from those concepts there, taken at different levels. Um, Many, many, and uh, I've talked about that elsewhere. Um, So... uh, Actually, let's, that leads me on to something else. Let's, I said I would start with um, some familiar ideas. and uh, So we touched on dependent origination. I didn't really mean to go into that so much. But um, what about the three characteristics? Uh, tilakana in Pali, uh, Trilakshana in Sanskrit. Um, the three characteristics, sometimes called the three marks of existence, has become quite a common uh, sort of uh, Buddhist category, categories. Um, so dukkha, anicca, and anatta. Uh, dukkha meaning uh, suffering or unsatisfactoriness, really. Uh, we could say um, anicca, impermanence. Um, and anatta, either, usually translated either as um, uh, not-self um, or not belonging to a self. Sometimes it's translated as, as um, there is no self and occasionally it's translated to refer to what I would call as the emptiness of inherent existence of phenomena but the thing that I want to uh, open up and some of you will be familiar um, with me saying this from before so there's this relatively familiar Buddhist concept what I would like to uh, open up is just to point out that we can relate to these three characteristics, three marks, as facts, um, as realities or truths. The truth of 
everything is that it is dukkha. The truth of, um, so even if something is pleasant, it's going to be, it's not going to be finally satisfactory and hence it's unsatisfactory. The truth of anything at all is that it's impermanent and it's not self or etc. It doesn't belong to myself. Um, so we can take take them as facts, these three characteristics, and kind of just make that a kind of um, either just a, a kind of abstract philosophy or or a kind of attitude to life, or take them as facts and plug them in a, a, as medita- meditations and go a bit deeper than just a kind of general life attitude. Um, and uh, but the, the point is there in in as facts, they're part of what uh, some modern philosophers call the, the facticity of our existence. Again, that the sort of unavoidable, um, uh, yes, hard realities of our existential predicament. Unsatisfactoriness, impermanence, and this absence of a, uh, uh, a kind of um, self-essence. Uh, to ourselves. So one can look at them as facts and part of the facticity of our um, existential situation, or one can pick up these three characteristics as ways of looking. And then they have to be um, meditative lenses, meditative tools, and and it will turn out meditative avenues. So um, I pointed out elsewhere that uh, the Buddha... So oftentimes they're given... um, uh, they, they are referred to this anicca dukkha anatta dukkha anicca anatta uh, are referred to as three characters or three marks uh, lakana or lakshana in Sanskrit. Um, but sometimes the Buddha um, referred to them, or, or when he was talking about them, um, he talked more in terms of um, what I would call a way of looking. So he talks about dukkha anicca anatta sanya perception, perceiving. Um, perceiving in those terms, um, or uh, dukkha anicca or anatta anupasana, which means a kind of um, observing, looking at, contemplating, considering, or viewing. Pasana anupasana uh, is is to view, um, which would translate very well to uh, ways of looking, as a way of looking. So, uh, anicca as a way of looking. What does that mean? And, and you, you're probably familiar with my teachings about this. And it's it's like looking, plugged into, focusing on, attentive to, interested primarily in, in that moment, um, the impermanence of things, and just sustaining that as a lens. All I'm interested in now is the impermanence, and it might be um, l- long scale impermanence, the impermanence of you know vast stretches of time, or or ordinary time scales, or very very um, micro time scales, but all I'm wanting to see over and over when I've got that way of looking those lenses on is impermanence. Or anatta, just not self, not me, not mine. And I just sustain that um, for a period, half an hour, ten minutes, an hour, whatever it is. And what happens? Where does it take me? It's a way of looking rather than a truth. So as I employ it as a way of looking, I, I let it unfold. I don't a priori fix a limit on what I will see or what will uh, what that lens will reveal to me. And similarly with Dukkha, it's just unsatisfactory. And there's another way of doing it I'm not going to go into now. Um, 
then the question becomes, when I look this way, what happens to um, my experience? What happens to appearances? What happens to perception? And so what we have here, on the one side, uh, the possibility of taking them as facts, these uh, three characteristics. And then what will happen? Well, if I plug them in, if, if I could not plug them in as so I could leave them abstract, or I could plug them in to my, as a way of looking, but I've decided that they're facts, that they're, um, uh, and I've kind of, in that way, kind of put a limit on them. Um, and so there will be there will be uh, some degree of less fabricated, certainly less clinging, because when I see as things are unsatisfactory, I just let go. Um, I'm going through this very quickly. There's much more, but I've been through it elsewhere so many times. I'm not going to repeat it here. Um, there will be a little less clinging, somewhat less clinging, maybe quite a lot less clinging, and less fabrication of perception. When I leave them a little more open-ended, and I employ these ways of looking, then. Uh, then there can be actually a lot less fabrication. I, I kind of really go on a journey with these ways of looking. And I begin to see, really, and because I'm set up by adopting what we're calling the phenomenological approach, I'm set up in a different way. I'm actually looking for the effects on perception and the effects on fabrication, remember. So I begin to really clock Oh, with these ways of looking, there is less fabrication. What I perceive, what appears, depends on the ways of looking. These ways of looking um, fabricate much less. How much less? I just keep going with them. And I will realize that with, um, particularly with, less so with the Anicca, uh, more so with the Dukkha, but even more so with the Anatta, they really can take me deep into uh, an an unfabricating, a uh, state of much, much less fabrication. And, and, and because I'm connecting fabrication and ways of looking, I start to understand phenomena are empty. And I, deve- I develop that skill, my range with that, etc., um, with, with these three ways of looking. And I see more and more phenomena dependently arise. They're empty of inherent existence. And what that does is actually then... It, you come kind of a little bit full circle in the understanding, then it kind of, I've started with ways of looking just as something I'm kind of just seeing what will happen, because, yeah, okay, I agree, you can look at things in different ways. Then because I see their radical and total emptiness, um, I, I come back to ways of looking in a way that re, that kind of gives the whole idea and practice of ways of looking, of validation at a whole other level. Because things are thoroughly empty, we're left with nothing but ways of looking. I can, they don't exist independent of the way of looking. I look this way, I see, it, I see a phenomenon like that, disappears. I look that way, it uh, disappears, something different. Uh, through all the gradations there. So this whole journey into emptiness liberates and legitimizes and opens up the whole possibility of um, uh, a mode of conceiving of practice as as a playing with ways of looking. But let's go into this a little more in in, uh, specifically. So either through um, playing with uh, some understanding in practice of emptiness, or actually through developing jhana practice. Excuse me. For instance, um, 
excuse me, just the first three or four jhanas, even, even just that. Um, one, uh, if one really gains some mastery in the jhanas, one of the things that you can do is where there is pain in the body, you, ch- you can just um, decide to see it as bliss, as, uh, or as happiness or pleasure, and, and the perception, the appearance, the sensation, the vedna actually changes. So either with jhana practice, with, with what I would call moving towards a kind of mastery of jhana practice, uh, so not everyone will teach this thing, what I'm talking about now, and or through some understanding of emptiness, you come to realize just how malleable perception is. That's intimately related with ways of looking business. So here's this this pain in my knee or my back. This doesn't happen. This is not possible all the time, every time. But just the fact that it's possible quite a lot of the time um, really uh, can make an impact on, on, on the understanding and on the being. We just come to see how malleable the perception of a Vedana is. So dukkha, as in what the Buddha calls dukkha dukkha, just the the dukkha of pain, um, starts to get relativized. Is it necessarily uh, that? No. I can look at it and see it, feel it as something different, as as actually as pleasure, as bliss, as PT, as uh, whatever. Um, further into the understanding of emptiness, one begins to see the emptiness as a set of all phenomena, anything even a, a micro thing, a mental thing, a momentary thing, uh, whatever. Uh, one sees the emptiness of all phenomena and also the emptiness of time. So seeing all that together, understanding it, feeling it, sensing it in one's practice, where does that leave the notion of, let's say, impermanence as a truth? Where does it leave that characteristic? Um, if time is empty and things are empty, can I really talk about the impermanence of things? Even micro-things, even a moment of Vedna. It doesn't, it doesn't really stand up as an ultimate truth anymore. And what can happen as I take this whole ways of looking, these three characters, I take them deeper in practice. It's so... Uh, so much um, fruit can, can, can come out, out of those ways of looking if I really take my time to develop <coughs> them, the art and everything that they can involve. But either from the emptiness understanding, the deep emptiness understanding and radical emptiness understanding that can emerge, or through and or through what we've been calling sensing with soul, it's quite possible to regard, um, or, or that the, the kind of... Um, <coughs> adjudication of something being dukkha or the phenomena being dukkha, we, we are able to say and really mean it and to sense it as perfect. And I talked about that when I talked about, for instance, uh, my illness and my cancer and possi- possibly dying. And this sensing with soul, the whole situation and all of it as perfect. It came out of the sensing with soul. Um, but we can also arrive at that through emptiness practice because of the malleability, or as I said, see it as bliss, uh, and some of you who are familiar with um, Vajrayana teachings will recognize that seeing all things as bliss, all phenomena are bliss, and there's different levels and, and uh, kind of colors of what that means, which I won't go into right now. Uh, but these, these seeings become um, possible, and the, the dukkha 
of of unset of finitude, what I call the dukkha of finitude. Um, things are unsatisfactory because they're just finite and limited, because they're finite in time. So things are dukkha unsatisfactory because they're impermanent, but also because they're they're limited. We we feel a thing. Um, we sense a thing, whether it's an outer thing or an inner thing, a, a subtle thing or a gross thing, um, as um, having hard edges, rigid edges, as sharply defined. That's in our habitual perception of things for the most part. And so there's a dukkha just because things are um, have a finitude in time, they're impermanent, and also just because... Well, they can't satisfy because I'm going to want something different. Uh, 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 you know, I'm going to outgrow this thing, uh, whatever in my desires or whatever. So they're unsatisfactory. But again, either through sensing with soul or through a deep emptiness understanding, um, we begin to see and sense things, or we can possibly see and sense things as fu- as infinite. Yes, remember that soft edge, elastic edge um, of the w- the way things appear to us when we sense with soul. And because of the whole soul-making dynamic, the eros pushing further this, the, the image and the logos, the psyche and the logos of this phenomenon, whatever, it's no longer, it's no longer finite. It's now infinitely expandable, in, infinitely dimensionalized, etc., or when we see its emptiness, we see the, this, these hard edges that separate it from um, all else, from us, from other phenomena, etc. Um, they are illusory. So, um, because a thing then can be seen no longer to have uh, this this uh, unsatisfactoriness that comes from finitude, um, we can also look at it and say, it's not dukkha. It's perfect, it's bliss, it's divine. And similarly, we can look at something, and of course, we can see its impermanence, but again, either through seeing the emptiness, as I said, the emptiness of time, or the emptiness of the phenomena, um, or through uh, seeing it iconically, you know, sensing it with soul, and then that um, timeless, eternal, eternality aspect that I talked about, um, we could just as well, again, see it as the opposite. It's impermanent, but it's also somehow eternal. Um, and uh, so just as we can see it as dukkha or completely not dukkha, the opposite of dukkha, we can see it as impermanent or not, or, or somehow eternal, iconic. These are all ways of looking that become available to us. The very characteristic flips into its opposite, or seeing not self, or there is no self, or whatever. We become free, having seen the emptiness of all phenomena, and then the emptiness of all self views. We become free to entertain, to play with, to enter into any self view, any self view. It's, it all becomes available because they're all empty. It's not like this self-view is okay, the self-view of the self as a process is okay, but the self-view of the personality is an illusion or something like that. Actually, any self-view. So again, we can move in, in to, from anatta to atta, from no self to self, and we're just playing. The ways of looking are just opening up there. So this lakana, lakshana, uh, as as doors or gates rather than truths or goals.
they are doors to, as I said, um, uh, to this avenue of less and less fabrication and to the understanding, the radical understanding uh, that, that of emptiness that comes out of that and then the liberation that comes out of that. What is liberated when I see the deep emptiness of things? And we can then still use them in their more limited meanings and ways. When I see... Um, the imp- when I contemplate the impermanence of things, when I put that lens on, adopt that way of looking, and I also somehow know that um, time is not real, actually it can go even deeper in terms of its uh, liberative efficacy. Impermanence is not real, and I'm still looking at the impermanence, and it goes to a whole other level. Or I can veer away from the impermanence, just see the eternality, or the total emptiness, or whatever. There's all kinds of possibilities. One of the um, possible meanings of, of Lakshana is, is the act of aiming. It's the act of aiming. So it's not, it's not the, the goal of the aiming, or the, the, the uh, you know, the... the the target, it's the act of aiming, um, the truth of the goal. Uh, again, I don't want to, I'm I, I, uh, really not into playing that game about etymology and insisting on this or that, but I, I, I view etymology more poetically and um, just as something to play with. So well, there's that meaning as well, you know. It's possible in aiming, in the act of aiming, that that aim, uh, that the arrow then takes us somewhere. It goes on a journey and it emerges even eventually in in what appears to be the opposite of what I was originally uh, aiming at. And that kind of turning around of um, original teachings is very common. Some of you will know in Vajrayana teachings. It's about the treasure of the kilesas or... Um, uh, or as, as I went into with the three characteristics here. Lakshana in Sanskrit can also mean um, the, the sign or the line that one draws, uh, in other words one creates, one draws on, um, on the ground prepared for a sacrifice or on sacrificial ground. So again we can say it's, it's a kind of creation, it's not a reality, it's a creation, it's a way of looking um, rather than a facticity. It's a creation to make or discover or to open holiness. And again, I'm not uh, insisting on some historical fact of etymology there, um, but there is that meaning also. Um, so, with these three original characteristics, dukkha, nicca, anatta, um, it's almost like they can become their opposites. And again, not as truths, not as truths. Just ways of looking. So, when we're talking about ideas in the bigger picture, we can also talk about what ideas we have of perception. What are our ideas about perception? How much are our ideas about perception? Again, just kind of not well considered, um, leg, you know, received from legacy or influence of, of uh, the dominant culture or the history. 
um, what are our ideas, or what are the possible ideas then, if we get if we get more conscious of it and till that soil, turn that soil, like I talked about? Um, what are the possible ideas we can have about perception? So again, we can have perception as just we have we have the idea, either unconsciously or deliberately, we can go into it. Um, idea of perceiving is you just perceive what's factually there. You perceive the truth of reality out there in the world, etc. Um, remember when I talked about um, different skillful modes of sensing. So there's there's an overlap here. And that's a skillful mode of sensing. I need to do something in the world. I go through it. I don't. I just go into a mode sometimes of um, yeah. It's just fact. One's not. It's just a kind of automatic mode. But I could have another idea about perception, which is um, again with the ways of looking. The purpose is to deconstruct. This is what the Buddha was getting at. Deconstruct. You should smash, destroy uh, the aggregates, he says. Uh, deconstruct them through the way of looking so that the there is an opening eventually. So there's less and less fabrication and eventually an opening to unfabricated. And one um, goes beyond the world, so to speak. Lokutara in Bali. Um... So that that's a whole other idea about perception. That perception is, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a delusory construct, or certainly a problematic construct, and one can break free of it or see through it, so to speak, and go beyond this world of um, uh, avijja and fabricated perception. Or again, touching on what we've already touched on, um, one one could say that um, uh, one is kind of um, perceptions in the service of just you know operating in the world and coping with the world. I kind of just mentioned that. Um, or the idea about perception is that there's um, uh, a play that's possible, an art that's possible, and the, the creation and discovery of all kinds of landscapes and vistas, appearances, perceptions, experiences, um, for what? For the sake of soul-making, would be another view. There's many possible views, uh, ideas, concepts about what what perception is and what it's for, etc. So one possibility is that it's a, uh, the, the playing with perception in the service of creating and discovering uh, what is soul making and opening up soul making? And um, you know, contrasting what I just said uh, a moment ago about you know one one whole uh, attitude and idea related related to perception is that it's just reality. It's just a kind of uh, one wouldn't use the language, but it's just flatly perceived. That's what the truth is. That's what the fact is. And one is just coping with that. That's the skillful sensing with soul. Versus actually, and I, I think I shared it um, once in a talk, about um, healing the perception of the world. So that, that uh, concept of tikkun olam, healing of the world, or restoration of the world can also mean um, restoration of the universe. Um, we can, we, we hopefully are engaged in acts and service and speech and uh, behavior that heals 
heals the world. But there's also the level of healing the perception of the world, redeeming it from um, soullessness, flatness, lack of divinity, lack of beauty in the perception. So yes, hopefully we make beautiful things in the world, we offer beautiful things, we speak beautiful things, we sing beautiful things into being, but also in in the eye of the beholder, in the creation discovery of soul-making perception, we can create, uh, we can uh, create beauty and heal the perception of the world. Um, I talked also. This is I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a repeat from uh, some earlier retreat, but we talked about um, again. Uh, different possible ideas about perception or ways of, if you like, ways of uh, understanding or conceiving of what perception is. Um, and, and by that I wasn't even more feeling what perception is. Again, what I'm talking about is not abstract. So I actually can have, one can actually have a sense, um, a felt sense of and, and a conception of perception as gift and grace. And by that I don't just mean the passive receptivity of the sense organs to uh, the impingement of um, vibrations of air to make sound or uh, photons or waves of light on the retina and all that, that simple receptivity. I mean gift and grace as, well, in all the fullness and the open-endedness of what that might mean when it's infused with soul, gift and grace. So something we're receiving, um, as I said, sometimes it feels like the soul is has designs for us or gives us something, um, uh, and we receive a certain perception from soul. Some experience opens up, some way of relating to the world is given to us. So there is that real um, felt sense uh, and conception wrapped up with a felt sense of perception as gift and grace that's possible. Or one can put the emphasis more on um, my work, if you like. So gift and grace, a second possibility um, of, of a conception and a felt sense of perception is, is as work. Because of uh, the, the potential malleability of perception through ways of looking, um, I can work um, in the moment and um, Practice is possible, work is possible to fabricate or unfabricate or shape perception of self, other world, etc. And again, what for? What for? What's the end there? Always back to this question, what's the end? What do you want? And that might vary in different situations. That's part of what a larger view of skill might mean. So gift and grace uh, as, a, as a conception, felt sense of, of, of what perception is. Um, work Perception as work, something that I work at, something that I am working at, something that takes a bit of effort. But also as an opportunity, as a third possibility. And opportunity comes uh, etymologically from porta, which means door. So perception as a door, as, as we said with the um, three characteristics, um, doors to possibilities. Now that's implicit in the whole idea of, of working um, and um, uh, maybe even in the idea of gift and grace because there's an opportunity to know perception as gift and grace or as partic-
participation in the divine. That's another sense of uh, perhaps a refinement of the gift and grace idea. We're participating in the divine. Uh, through uh, our perception. I've touched on all this before. I'm not sure when, but... Um, so participation in the divine in, in our existence is through certainly through embodied action, but it's also through our perception and our experience itself. ancient teacher from um, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Maximus the Confessor, his name was, um, wrote, God, the divine Logos, wishes to affect the mystery of his incarnation always and in all things. The divine wishes to affect the mystery of its incarnation always and in all things. And we can hear that and take that word incarnation uh, loosely um, or with with a lot of breadth as to what it might mean. But we can also, and and part of that is we can hear the divine wishes to affect the mystery of uh, its its, um, appearance, of its appearing always and in all things, always and in all things. Whatever the perception is, there's this possibility through our participation, through all this, um, uh, either the gift and grace or the opportunity or the work of perception, through our participation, um, we participate in the divine which wishes to affect the mystery, to appear, to incarnate always and in all things. Um, And in a way, that's, um, one could say, the whole point of tantric teachings. The whole point of Vajrayana is, um, from a certain point of view, you could say, is to see appearances as divine, which is how a Buddha sees them. To become a Buddha, which means partly to see appearances as divine. Uh, It's just in the Vajrayana tradition, as we've received it, it may be that they're they're kind of uh, relatively circumscribed, limited, and and generic uh, kind of options for what that what that actually is then experienced as what that divinity how that divinity is experienced or the kinds of experience of divinity and in the work that we're doing sensing the soul we're actually opening up more possibilities potentially infinite possibilities so when we talk if we go back to the three characteristics we can consider them as fact we can consider them as kind of ways of looking that are in the service of and for the sake of deconstructing, unfabricating. And the question is just, how deep do we go down that avenue? How deep do we go with those ways of looking into deconstruction, into unfabrication? And there is the possibility to go very deep with that, or just just a kind of very limited depth of unfabricating. And we can go so deep with them that they begin to deconstruct themselves. 
impermanence is, it begins to lose its meaning. It begin, begins to be revealed not as an ultimate truth, etc. And the others too. And then, and then they themselves, those three characteristics, are, are kind of loosened as concepts. And here we have again an instance where a, 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 a journey of deconstruction, a movement of deconstruction, can then, um, when it goes deep enough, then um, makes available the opportunity for opportunities for reconstruction, as um, perceiving of divinity, of sacredness, of bliss, of perfection, of eternality, etc. Those kind of opposites, uh, which are which are very. Um, commonly found in, in Vajrayana teachings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.